Buddhist Geeks. Seriously Buddhist. Seriously Geeky. Episode 51. Becoming Whole. Lineage and Gender in American Buddhism. In this episode, we continue our discussion with scholar-practitioner and Shambhala Acharya, Judith Simmer-Brown. We focus primarily on the issues of lineage and gender with regards to American Buddhism. This is part two of a two-part series. This episode of Buddhist Geeks is sponsored by the Do No Harm Movement. To learn more about the Do No Harm Movement and to receive your free Do No Harm bumper sticker and wristband, please visit donoharm.us. the other things that we covered in, or started to talk about in class I found really fascinating was about lineage, especially as lineage moves from country to country as it's done in the past with Buddhism and its transition from India to East, Southeast Asia, and pretty much now all over the world. What does it mean for Buddhism to be coming now to the West? Uh, not to be confused with the, the Zen koan about it. Yes, of course. <laughs> but you know, what does it mean for teachers and what does it mean for students? I know in the Shambhala tradition, there are many people now that are, are considered teachers, uh, acharyas. Yes. And I know that I've heard from you that uh, an acharya isn't exactly the same as a as a full-fledged Tibetan teacher in some ways. There's some differences. We are not empowered um you know, we're not Rinpoche's or or lamas. I think we're more equivalent to lamas in the right. Tibetan sense. And some of us have more education than than others. In the Shambhala tradition, there are 26, 27 acharyas, and we, ha- we come from very different kinds of background. Some have not had the academic training and the years of teaching in an academic environment like I have. And so we ha- tend to have specialties as mm. acharyas in Shambhala, I do think the issue of lineage is, is essential. And I, what I notice in American Buddhism, as American Buddhism spreads, uh, at first our Asian teachers were very hesitant to empower Western teachers. And then as they did so, they were a little nervous about what we would do with this responsibility. What I notice is, of course, we as Western Dharma teachers have come to recognize the importance of making Buddhism American. Mm. or Canadian or European or whatever. Right. That is very important that we make the, the teachings accessible. But one of the things I find personally um, concerning is how some Dharma teachers are so anxious to be popular, mm. to be um, American, that they are not returning to the roots of their tradition to find how to Americanize, but they're making it up as they go. Some Zen teachers are getting overly excited about the psychological material, and they are sort of taking off into psychological areas that Zen has traditionally not done so much. There are things in the roots of Zen that could be cultivated more as as psychological kinds of teaching. But I think that for us to adapt the teachings to a Western environment, it's important for us not to just come up with our own version, Mm -hmm. but to return to not only our teachers, our Asian teachers, but their teachers and their teachers back to the roots in my case, in Tibet, in India, and identify 
the kinds of teachings that are there that could be brought out more and find out things that really work in a, a Western environment. My teacher, Chogyam Trungpa Rinpoche, was known for being completely traditional and completely modern at the same time. And he inspired us to do the same. If we are only modern, according to the Tibetan view, uh, we cut off the channel of blessings. And there's a belief that when we are empowered teachers and we are teaching within the permission blessings of our teachers and our lineage holders, then there's a sense that when we teach, it's not just us. It's not just something I've made up, but there's a kind of channel of blessings that comes through that is much bigger and more uh, wise than I could ever be. Mm. And that when that happens, there's a sense of beyond a particular time and place. When we make the Dharma merely popular mm. and gimmicky and, you know, fitting the latest fad, the Dharma is no longer timeless. And in the way that I've been taught, the Dharma is timeless in its truth. Very simple, direct truths about the nature of our human experience and what we discover when we practice meditation. These are things that transcend culture, transcend time and place. And I think that if we become overly anxious to try to find uh, a new way to present everything that fits the particular time and place only, mm. then there's a problem. I do think, however, there are, there are some teachers who are so conservative that they won't adapt anything. Mm. And uh, Tibetan teachers have been in particular very nervous about passing on uh, empowerment to their Western students. They, right. They've... They are a refugee people. They have lost control of their country. The future of the Tibetan tradition relies on the Tibetans in exile and their students. And so there's a very profound responsibility for students who are teaching in the Tibetan tradition to stay true to the tradition while adapting the teachings. And if if Tibetan Buddhist practitioners and, and Western teachers are cutting off the channel of blessing... It's uh, it's a grave breach of responsibility and trust that our teachers have given us. That's, that's an, my view, at least. Yeah, that, that's a great view. And and it's interesting to think about movements like the mindfulness movements that are bringing, kind of stripping as much as they can certain cultural things uh, and trying to present the, the Dharma in a different way. And I wonder if if your criticism of not continuing to stay connected to the blessings of the of the lineage could apply to those kind of movements as well, potentially. Well, it's a very interesting thing being at Neuropa University, which has a psychology department, an environmental studies department, an education department, writing and poetics department, that are much more about applying uh, insights from meditation and from Buddhist tradition into very contemporary settings. Mm. And it's very rich to be in an environment where the concern for roots and for lineage are less important. I think that such things are very important. My husband, for example, is very involved in uh, developing contemplative pedagogy for public school classrooms mm. and how you bring meditation into the classroom. And he's traveling all over the country and working with Garrison Foundation and the social-emotional learning people about how you bring meditation into the classroom his concern is different from mine, and I think that's perfectly valid. I think it's very exciting. But as a religious studies person, as a scholar of Buddhism, my responsibility is to constantly go back to the tradition mm. and yet not be bound by the tradition. 
Right. That is, use the tradition as inspiration and foundation, but not as a straitjacket or as a limitation about where I could go with my own teaching and my own understanding. And I find it very enriching to be in an environment like Naropa, where people are often asking, are we going too far? And it's a conversation, and it's a conversation I take part in regularly about what is too far. I think that those organizations which have abandoned investigation of roots, and there are lots of Dharma centers and big publicized Dharma teachers and new uh, published Dharma approaches going on all over the country right now, uh, I think it's fine, but I do feel that a lot of them have lost any sense of loyalty to and integrity with the foundations of their own traditions. And so this is a place where I feel I'm often in a cautionary role just to say, this is why it's so important that American Buddhism have a strong education dimension. Mm -hmm. If American Buddhists are not educated in their tradition, they cannot make intelligent adaptations. Mm. And there are lots and lots of people who've done years and years of practice who know nothing from nothing historically and mm. textually about their traditions who are adapting in a haphazard way. Yeah. It's interesting that it seems to me having a connection to the lineage would bring a certain kind of humility when any sort of innovation happens because it's, it's recognizing, wow, for hundreds and thousands of years, people have been doing this and have been innovating in their own ways in whatever time and place they're at. So it's not like, I'm the first one to really innovate. Exactly. Yeah. And I think one of the particular areas of confusion, in my own personal opinion, is that a lot of people conflate Buddhism and psychology. They don't think there's any difference between the two. I think that psychology has a particular lineage and root of its own. I see it as fundamentally different from Buddhism. I think Buddhism has benefited from using psychological language, mm. but the method of Buddhism differs from psychological method. And I think that we can say the, the same thing about science and education as well, to appreciate the confluence of these approaches, but to distinguish that the Buddhist tradition has a particular way it's gone about things. And it's not about cultivation of a stronger, more healthy ego. Right, right. It's it's interesting when I've seen approaches that don't seem to really understand the historical basis for something, then they easily can conflate things because they, from the outside or the surface, maybe they look similar, like they use similar language like ego or... And if you think the word ego is a Buddhist word, you don't understand issues of translation. So right. this is where learning the original languages, learning the nuances of translation become a fundamental part of honoring lineage and tradition. So um, in, in our department at Naropa, we put a lot of emphasis on language study and learning about the authenticity of, of responsible translation, rather than assuming that this word ego is a Buddhist word, which it is definitely not. It's a Western psychological word, particularly coming from Freud. It has certain connotations that are not found in the Buddhist tradition. So these kinds of things are important, and it's why I think there's always going to be the role of the scholar of the educator in American Buddhism, if that does not grow over the next decades, we're going to have a Buddhism that is not, does not maintain any of the kind of integrity and power of the tradition as we received it from Asia. And it's of incredible concern to me that we consider study to be an ongoing practice in American Buddhism.
Mm-hmm. Nice. Yes, thanks. So the last topic, which I thought would be fascinating to go into, and I don't think we've actually gone into this topic with any of our previous interviewees, and that's basically about uh, as Buddhism's come to the West, that it's more common now to find female teachers and even female practitioners on the whole seem to be much greater. For instance, in the insight meditation tradition, I'd say at least 50% of the teachers I've sat with have been women. Yes. And actually more women tend to be sitting in on the retreats. It tends to be a little bit higher, maybe 60, 40. And that I think is generally true. I think in the Zen communities in America, there's more uh, prevalence of men, maybe 50, 50, maybe a little more than half are men, but from the things that I hear, and I certainly don't know statistics on this, but from what I hear anecdotally from people who, and we have many, many Buddhist teachers who come to Naropa to teach, what I hear is that most of our American Buddhist communities are over half women. And in Asia, we have inherited a system that is patriarchal in the way in which education has been done, in the way in which monastic orders have been passed on and ordinations the way in which uh, power and institutions have been formed, Buddhism has been patriarchal, and in American society is patriarchal as well. One of the wonderful things is the the timing of American Buddhism developing in the West mm-hmm. has been uh, on the heels of the feminist movement. Right. And many feminists like myself got into practice because we saw that feminism didn't necessarily relieve the suffering that we experienced in our lives. Mm. I was very active in the feminist movement and uh, had really seen the, the social ills of patriarchy. But one of the things that I learned very quickly is that feminism was definitely only a partial solution. And as I became more uh, curious about my own mind and began to practice, I began to discover something much more powerful for healing the ills that I saw than feminism alone. So there are lots and lots of women who have flocked to Buddhist practice out of a real desire to experience a quality of peace and clarity and confidence in basic goodness that they have not discovered in other areas of their lives. So um, there are a lot of women Buddhist teachers. Now, it's very common when you study history of religions, to see the first generation of religious movements in any society, and that's the most patriarchal ones as well, it is commonly discovered that there would be an equal number of men and women, or certainly more women teachers than you would encounter in later generations, because most new religious movements in whatever culture they've grown up in, um, women have had opportunities in the first generation. What has commonly occurred, if you study history of religions, is that in succeeding generations, patriarchy reasserts itself. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that we could very easily see in the next generation of teachers is a decline in the number of women teachers. So I remember that there have been a number of Buddhist teachers who have talked with us, you know, Asian Buddhist teachers who've talked with us as women practitioners about this. And I remember that Pema Chodron, who's a very good friend of mine, was talking to a Tibetan teacher about this very issue. And his response was, that's history, now it's up to you. And it seems to me that one of the fundamental things that we have as a responsibility as practitioners is to make sure that American Buddhism doesn't fall prey to the patriarchal patterns that have been so common to it 
in Asia and have been common in Western religious traditions, which are also patriarchal. I think that's that's a key. I think that in American Buddhism, because of the history of various kinds of abuses of power that have developed in American Buddhist communities, women students have trusted women teachers more in many ways for successful uh, successfully holding their seats as teachers without abusing power through uh, sexual abuse and things like that. I'm hoping that women teachers like myself are worthy of the respect and appreciation that we've gotten from both male and female students, and that we also continue a tradition of teaching that women teachers have. I think one of the qualities is that women teachers have exhibited the ability to make things experiential and to include the emotional life. Um, And in, in my friendships with many women teachers in America, I've appreciated how it is that the return to a real heartfelt sense of the practice. Uh, There are many, many teachers like Pema Chodron and Sharon Salzberg and many others who have reminded us of our hearts, of how to work positively with our emotions, to uh, remember that there are uh, children and families involved in our practitioner communities. Not everybody is single and unmarried or how it is that issues of life stages are involved, how it is that we practice within family life. And for me, as a wife and as a mother, it's been an extremely important thing to keep in mind that my experience as a wife and mother is incredibly relevant to my male and female students, that many of them are in family situations as well. And if we are not including our practice issues in our family life, then what, what good is our practice for? Yeah, that's a great point. And I often turn to my wife for guidance in that in that area of relationship and emotionality. And she just naturally seems to have a more intuitive grasp of those things. And it's so great that there are women out there who have an understanding of those areas who are sharing them so actively. And I definitely hope that we continue to uh, make sure that that's, that's honored in the Buddhist tradition. I mean, certainly seems super relevant and important. It seems to me that the newer generations of Buddhist male practitioners are more integrated with personal life and public life, more integrated with practice and intellect, and that that's incredibly promising to me. I mean, that's one of the things I appreciate about you, Vince, and it seems to me that that's the challenge is for us to become more whole. I think if we as women teachers are only identified with the feminine things, right. and one of the things that I, I feel for myself, I feel very uh, lucky to be a practitioner scholar, which the scholarly pursuits have been mostly associated with men. And so being able to actually integrate more masculine and feminine aspects, my own family life and my scholarly life in my practice, all of us really need to look at ways to become more balanced and full in those kinds of ways. And I think that as we pass on our traditions of practice, there are going to be men who are just as quick to talk about family life and relationships mm-hmm. as they are their work life and their personal lives and their intellectual lives. And that Buddhist practice has a tremendous capacity to integrate these places that we would normally partition and separate and, and forget parts of ourselves. Mm. Do you think that, that we have the potential to actually help create a more mature a more mature Buddhism? Is that, is that a potential that we have? I, mean, I, do, I do think that. I think a more mature Buddhism... I've been invited to teach in Malaysia 
on practicing in family life because in Asia, there are very few women teachers and the male teachers never teach about families. Mm. And I think that we can have a more mature Buddhism if women's voices or the private and personal voices are included in Buddhism altogether. So I think that this is a benefit that we as American Buddhists can bring to Asian Buddhism more. Mm. And uh, very interesting to encounter Asian Buddhist communities where women women's experience is not included in the teaching seat at all mm-hmm. by men or women. I think the other thing is that we, I, I think as American Buddhists, have a much more clear sense of the future of our own culture, aside from Buddhist or not Buddhist, mm-hmm. that we need to really integrate more fully our lives, uh, our emotional life with our intellectual life, that this is uh, something that Buddhism can contribute. And a lot of our religious traditions in America never address emotional issues. Mm. And they're viewed as merely personal psychotherapeutic issues, often problematized. And uh, but they're completely at the heart of our humanity. Mm. And as we uh, go to the next levels as human beings in this culture, this is something that we, I think, can contribute in the Buddhist tradition. Particularly Tibetan Buddhism is has a long, long tradition of working with emotional intelligence. Mm. And uh, it's one of my passions in the Buddhist tradition, and it feels to me something that will benefit everybody. We don't have to go to shrinks to get in touch with our emotions. Meditation is one of the very best ways. And there are very powerful, pragmatic teachings in Buddhism to teach us more emotional balance. Mm. Great. So do you have anything else you'd like to share or anything you'd like our listeners to hear well, I want to say this is my first time of being online in an interview. Nice. I think this is fantastic to have uh, more use of the these kinds of mediums to speak and share the Dharma. I think it's uh, one of the most important frontiers for Dharma practitioners to become more technically uh, savvy in mm. how we spread conversations about meditation and about Dharma practice and Dharma communities altogether. Mm. And I'm hoping that more and more people will do this. Uh, One of the things I've appreciated most about teaching at Naropa is that many Dharma communities in America are, most people are over 45 Mm -hmm. and the future of the Dharma is here in this medium, in this conversation, in the electronic environment and Mm. the World Wide web. And certainly from my students, I'm learning a lot about this. So thank you so much for inviting me, Vince. Yeah, absolutely. And I just wanted to mention, if you want to find out more about Judith, you can find her online at www.naropa.edu forward slash faculty. She's one of the faculty members there. And you can also find her at shambhala.org forward slash teachers. So if you're interested in what she's doing, want to find out what her schedule is, she's often teaching around around the United States and probably around the globe. And one other thing I wanted to say is the course that you took from me, Vince, which was a course on uh, mind and emotions. I teach online at Naropa every every fall. It's a 15 week course, 30 talks uh, through an e-college format uh, platform and uh, with online lectures and threaded discussions and uh, weekly quizzes. It's a, a rigorous thorough introduction to the nature of mind and emotions from the early Buddhist texts. And uh, it's it's a great joy. In fact, when I go home this afternoon, I'll be meeting my online students. I talk with them a little bit every day. And that's open to the public? It's open to the public. Okay. It's uh, it's a, a credit 
or non-credit course through nice. Naropa University. Nice. So that can be found at naropa.edu? Yes. Okay. Yes. Look, look for distance learning okay. on naropa.edu. Great. I'll post a link so people can find it. Okay. Great. Great. Well, thank you, Judith, for thank coming by. Thank you so much. Thank you. Take care. Yes. Bye-bye. Join us for the fourth annual Buddhist Geeks Conference, hosted in partnership with Mindful Cyborgs and Shambhala Sun from October 16th through the 19th in beautiful Boulder, Colorado. This year's conference will be exploring the convergence of Buddhism with modern culture and technology through informative keynote presentations, idea-packed TED-style talks, self-organizing community dialogues, and contemplative workshops and practice periods. This year's list of presenters includes the world's most quantified man, Chris Dancy, abbot of the village Zendo in New York City, Roshi Pat Enkyo O'Hara, and pragmatic Dharma provocateur, Daniel Ingram, as well as many others. For more information and to register, visit BuddhistGeeks.com conference. After nearly a year in private beta, the Buddhist Geeks Network is now open for any independent practitioners who want to engage in interdependent practice. You can find out more about the Buddhist Geeks Network by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. And if you'd like to join the community and join us in regular social meditation practice or other events that we host there in the network, all freely offered, you're very welcome to do so, again, by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. Love to see you there.